I have been fortunate enough to travel to Israel several times to study the land, the history, and the religious context of the biblical writings. I've walked in some amazing places, some of the same places that biblical heroes like Elijah and Samuel and Samson have walked. I've hiked trails that Jesus probably hiked. I've picked up stones in the places that David, who our story, up, story is about, picked up in order to defeat the giant Goliath. As you can imagine, walking in those places, hiking in those places, is a rather formative experience. And as I thought of the text for this week, those trips to Israel have come to my mind over and over, particularly the points in those trips in which we're on our way to Jerusalem. We often plan our trips so that Jerusalem is the last place that we come to. After two weeks of hiking through the deserts, being the only people on trails and not seeing anybody else in the wilderness, you can understand the anticipation of coming into a holy city. There's a buzz among our people as our bus climbs the mountains towards Jerusalem. The energy is palpable. I imagine that our busload of people may feel just a fraction of what David and the people of Israel felt on this day marching the ark into this city. Usually on our trips, we come into the city of Jerusalem on a Friday afternoon, just in time to welcome the Sabbath, which begins at the moment of sundown. After a brief orientation to the city's geography from Mount Scopus, we make our ways down to the Western Wall, which is the place that is the closest that you can stand to where the temple once stood without being up on top of the Temple Mount. This spot is a holy spot for the people of Israel. As afternoon turns to evening, the square around this wall begins to fill. It fills and it fills with Jewish people all gathering to worship and to welcome the holy day. People recite scriptures and prayers are said in English and in Hebrew and in Russian and in more languages that you can imagine. Spontaneous song begins to erupt from different pockets of the crowd. And finally, when night falls and Sabbath officially begins, as one body, the people begin to dance. It's usually shoulder to shoulder by this point, and the body moves as one in circles as the people rejoice and dance and celebrate before their Lord, welcoming what is sometimes called Queen Shabbat. As David brought the ark into the city of Jerusalem, he danced, and the throng of people around him danced as well. This was a moment of rejoicing, a moment of celebration, a moment of unabashed worship. But it was also a moment of horror. There was also a moment of scorn in this story. And there's also a moment of political manipulation. You see, this ark, it goes by many different names. It's called the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God or the extended Ark of God to which His holy name is attached. This ark is itself a symbol. It represents several different things, and to have a better idea of what this ark represents, we need to talk about this ark's history and a little bit about the stories of this ark. 
and the role that it played throughout the history and throughout the faith of these people. In the Exodus narrative, God tells the people to build a tabernacle, to build all of the holy instruments and the vessels that will go within that tabernacle, and the ark is one of these. Whenever the people make camp while they're camping and wandering in the wilderness, this tabernacle is to be directly in the center of their camp. Within that tabernacle, there's a room called the Holy of Holies, and in the center of that room rests the ark. It's said that when Moses met with God within that tabernacle, he would go into that Holy of Holies, and the presence of God would appear between the wings of the cherubim. You can see an image of what that ark may have looked like in the bulletin that you were given this morning. When encamped, God's presence is always in the center of the camp. When the people move, the camp is broken, the ark is covered, and the ark goes before the people. And so the first thing that the ark represents is God's presence and guidance among his people. As the people wandered the desert, as they moved into the promised land, the ark was also carried into the battles that Israel fought. In the book of Judges, the ark is somehow consulted before a battle is joined in order to ask whether an attack should even be made. When people cross the Jordan River, the ark is used as a shield of sorts to protect them because the Jordan River at this point is at flood stage. It's a violent torrent, and this river does not stop until the people carrying the ark touch the water, step into the sea. So this is the second thing that this ark represents. It's a talisman or a shield of sorts. For the Israelites, the presence of this ark often ensures victory and protection in dangerous situations. The ark also contained three items in different places of the scripture. It talks about these items. According to the book of Hebrews, these three things were in the ark. And these items help us to understand more of the meaning of this ark. First, inside the ark was a jar of manna. You all know that God provided manna for the people in the desert. And so this ark represents God's provision in a place that has scarce resources. Next, the biblical accounts differ in the placement, but the rod or the staff of Aaron is always either in front of or next to or even within this ark. Aaron's staff was used in his confrontations with Pharaoh, with the confrontations with the gods of Egypt. And the staff also miraculously budded when the people of God determined who their priests would be. And so this staff represents God's supremacy in the realm of the divine and God's power within the world that he created. Finally, Moses placed in this ark the tablets of the covenant. This is how the ark takes the name, the ark of the covenant. It holds the marriage contract, if you will, of the people with their God. These tablets remind the people of the covenant that they have made and the God that they made that covenant with. It reminds them of their promises to be faithful to that covenant and of the faithfulness of the God that made that covenant with them. And so this symbol of the ark represents these five things for the people of Israel. God's presence, God's protection, his provision, his power, 
and His covenant's faithfulness. As all of you know, ours is a faith that is steeped in symbol. It has been from the beginning since this, as this ark story shows. Can you think of other symbols that come from the history of our faith? From the Old Testament, other symbols include an altar, the tabernacle itself, and all of the instruments within that tabernacle. You might even say that the priesthood and that the land of Israel is itself a symbol. In the Christian tradition, symbols that we have celebrated include anchors, and the Cairo, the Ichthys, and of course the cross. Both the Jewish and the Christian traditions celebrate the symbols of the flame and the dove, the water, the table, bread, and wine. If you look around this room, you see these different symbols and many more. We saw many of them in the visual liturgy this morning. On the stained glass, on these kneelers in front of me, the light fixtures, the tapestries, I'm wearing symbols of our faith. I'm standing in front of an altar and underneath an oculus in a room that's shaped like a cross. Each of these symbols carries depth and meaning for us as people of faith. These symbols call to mind the wondrous things that God has done in the history of our world, the wondrous things that He's done in our own lives and in the life of this church. But I do wonder something about all of these symbols. Do these symbols carry power in and of themselves? Was the ark an object that was imbued with supernatural power? And depending on how we answer those questions, what do we do with these symbols? How do we respond to these many symbols that we use in our life of faith and worship? In this story, the story of David bringing the ark into Jerusalem, we see a few different ways that people respond to the symbol of the ark, and I think that we can learn much from them. The first one is this, and it may be a little bit surprising. In this story, David initially uses the ark as a political tool. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of 2 Samuel describe the ways that David steps into, reinforces, and consolidates his rule as the new king of Israel. They're a very interesting collection of stories, and I encourage you to read them all, but mostly I encourage you to read the whole of chapter 6 because we left a lot out in the lectionary reading this morning. You see, this ark, it had become a somewhat forgotten symbol for many, many years. In the beginning of the first book of Samuel, even before Saul is king, there's a story that says that despite of the presence of the ark, the Philistines are able to defeat the people of Israel, and they capture this ark. And then the Philistines experience a series of bad events that they blame on the hand of God. And because of this, they send this ark back into Israel, where it eventually comes to the house of a family named Abinadab, and there it rests for years until this moment. It's seemingly forgotten. Now David, David is certainly a man of faith, but he's also described as a particularly shrewd politician and monarch. 
David remembers this ancient symbol of the presence and power and provision of God and decides that he needs to bring this to his newly captured capital city to show the people that the Lord's favor rests on him and on his city. And David, however faithful he may be, then makes one of the many mistakes that David makes that cost somebody their life. In treating the ark like this political tool, he transports it in the way that the Philistines transport it, on an ox cart drawn by livestock. But if you look at that picture, this ark has poles built into it. And it actually says in the book of Numbers that you must carry the ark by the poles. It's not to be moved any other way. Our selection of scripture this morning omitted a rather frightening story. As the ark is moved, the livestock stumble and the ark almost takes a spill off of the cart. Uzzah, who is one of the sons of Abinadab, reaches up to stabilize the ark and is suddenly struck dead. It's a shocking, horrifying story for those of us that read it. And David is horrified. It says that David shouted out at God in anger and realized that he could not take this symbol into his own possession. And it's not just because of the symbol. David finally realizes that the misuse of this symbol is the misuse of the God that it represents. And this God is an active and powerful God. To treat the symbol of God as a political tool is to treat God as a political tool and this God will not have any of that. A second response to this art comes from the character of Michael, the daughter of Saul, the former king. As Michael watches David come into the city with the ark, we're told that she watches from a window at a distance. She looks at David with derision and later confronts his undignified dance. Her physical distance from the action and the relatively short treatment of her in the story tell us pretty much all we need to know. She dismisses not only the ark, but the God that the ark represents. This woman, Michael, is an Israelite. The story of the Exodus is her own story, and yet she dismisses the reminder of what God has done for her and for her people. She sees only this man that is supposed to carry the dignity of a king acting like an immodest town drunk. And so in turn, Michael is dismissed by the author with one brief comment. So to her dying day, Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children. Finally, we come back to David and the way that he finally responds to this ark. The second time that David sets out with the ark, he's witnessed the power of God and he's done his homework. He calls the priests now to carry the ark for him. The journey is resumed, and the ark comes into the city of David. And David, wearing nothing but a priest's ephod, dances and sings before the Lord. Not the ark. He dances before the Lord. He makes sacrifices, and he sends the meat of those sacrifices out to the people, feeding them and blessing them. This symbol of the presence and the power and the provision of God has finally called David to a response of that presence and that power and that provision. On those trips 
that I've taken into Jerusalem. For those of us that hold these stories of the Bible to be formative, the city itself is a symbol of the presence and the power and the activity of God in our world. The city does not hold any supernatural power, but that city does remind me that the living God acts in this world. That Emmanuel, God with us, walked those streets. And that calls me into a response of worship. On those Friday afternoons as evening turns to night, our Jewish brothers and sisters do not dance merely because of the day. They dance because the God that set them free from slavery gave them the Sabbath as a symbol of his covenant. And their dancing echoes the dancing of David. David first misuses the symbol of the living and active God as a tool for his own gain, a tool to cement his political position, and a tool to manipulate the people around him. And that misuse costs life, the life of Uzzah, an innocent servant. Michael dismisses this symbol of God, and the text attributes her loss of the ability to bear life to this dismissal. The symbols of our faith deserve a faithful response. They represent not only the wood or the stone that they're made of, but the God that sets us free. They point us toward the God that offers us life through Jesus the Christ, through the Spirit that gives us breath. They call us to respond with worship of God and with generosity to our neighbor. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, we bless you and we thank you for your presence, for your protection in our lives, for the provision that you give us in our moments of need. We thank you for the powerful ways that you have worked in our lives, in the life of this church, and in the life of this faith. We thank you for your faithful and steadfast love and the covenant that you renew with us at the table every time that we celebrate the Eucharist. We ask, God, that the symbols of our faith would remind us of our thankfulness and that in that thankfulness we, we would respond with hearts oriented towards you in worship and hearts oriented towards each other in generosity. We bless you for what so many of these symbols point us towards, for the love that's expressed in the world that you've created, for the love that's expressed in the incarnation of Jesus, for the love that's expressed in every breath that we take where your spirit gives us life. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.